You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We're in the book of Philippians this morning, and if you would turn there, we will be in chapter 3 of Philippians. And we'll be looking at a text beginning with verse 7, which we left off last time, and we'll be looking from 7 through 10 in chapter 3 of Philippians. As you know, Paul, when writing this book from prison in Rome, he was uh, incarcerated and under house arrest at that time, wrote this book to the Philippians because of his love and concern for them. They were concerned about the condition of Paul. They hadn't heard from him, had received reports that he was in prison. So they sent Epaphroditus, of course, to check on him. And then while visiting, he, was, uh, he became sick almost to the point of death. He, he recovered and returned. However, Paul wanted to encourage the flock. He wanted not only to encourage them, he wanted them to continue to pursue Christ and their relationship, and also to continue to proclaim the gospel amongst all those in Philippi. As you know, Philippi was part of the Roman Empire, embraced all of what Roman culture embraced, So for these Christians in that period of time in the Roman Empire, which was corrupt, full of immorality of all kinds, they lived and were set apart for Christ. And this is what Paul wanted to encourage them in. So in this particular portion of the text, he had already warned them in uh, verse 2 about the False teachers, the circumcisers, the circumcision. These teachers were saying, okay, you can have Christ, but to fully become gods, you have to continue in the practices of the Judaistic practice. So they were trying to uh, bring forth these false teachings and to basically do the same thing as in Galatia, They had the same kind of concept. They wanted what they began by the Spirit. They wanted to continue in the flesh. So Paul here wanted to exhort them, encourage them at the same time, give them this admonition. So we begin in verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, 
but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I might attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul, though this book is supposed to be the practical book, one of the letters that Paul was trying to bring encouragement. It was called the book of joy, the book of encouragement, and it was also classified by many theologians as a practical epistle, how to live out your faith. But Paul is never lacking in doctrine. And in this little epistle, he's already told us about Christ and his humiliation coming here as a man, yet fully God and fully man, and then exalted when he was offered as a sacrifice for sin for all those who place their faith in him. So even though this is a book of encouragement and the practical book as it would be, it's a great theological treatise on God's grace and on his mercy for all those who trust him for salvation. So in these, uh, this particular passage, we want to acknowledge that Paul was looking back. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> he had already given a litany of the things that he had done in the past. He drew on his heritage, and going back to verse uh, 4 in this chapter, <clears throat> although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Then he goes on to say, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Now, how could he say he was found blameless? Well, anyone to look at him in his life could not find fault with Paul, other than the Christians, of course, because he was trying to annihilate the church. That was his goal. And yet, as far as living, uh, following God's law, he was following it to the letter. So the other Pharisees and Jews looked to him as a man that was blameless. He was living the life of a Jew and a zealot. He was zealous for God, but he was blinded to the truth about Jesus Christ. And of course... God literally blinded him on the road to Damascus when he finally came to a place of true conversion. And that was a miraculous work that God did. And then Paul, from that point on, fully gave himself to serving Christ. And when he comes here to this passage, he wants them to know all those things that he did in the past, all those legalistic, 
following of the law, Levitical law, he did, and he said it was all for naught. It was rubbish. And he counted it as a loss. Actually, those things were a hindrance to him. He thought at the time before salvation that this would gain merit with God, that he was showing himself to be a true servant of God. And yet when he came to the reality of realizing that salvation is by faith alone and Christ alone, through grace alone, he was humbled and broken and realized all that was just rubbish, worthless. <clears throat> Paul didn't want any of the saints to put confidence in the flesh, that is, attempting to live out the Christian faith in their own strength. How often can we slip into that mode, trying to do something in our own strength and not allowing God to work through us? This is what Paul wanted to protect the Philippians from attempting. He didn't want them to try to do anything or try to somehow bring merit to themselves by doing their own works. He wanted them to walk in the spirit and have God empower them to bring glory to his name. <clears throat> Paul gives the litany of those things as we just read. And then the apostle considered all of that. All of those works, and he counted them loss. But when we get to verse 8, he says, More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. As we look at this portion of the text, Paul is wanting to deepen his relationship with Christ. He was already a mature Christian. He was serving God, he was bringing forth the gospel, planting churches, and sacrificially living for Christ. And yet, he wanted a deeper relationship and a deeper knowledge of Christ. And we're going to look at that word, knowledge, later on in our text. <clears throat> it's not easy to describe what Paul was saying here. He said I, he didn't want to have his own righteousness derived from the law, but that which is through faith. Now that is the saving faith, the faith that's efficacious, it's effective for our salvation. That is the faith that God gives us as a gift. Paul wanted them to exercise that faith in their daily lives and to do so would bring forth glory to God. <clears throat> he didn't want them to have any kind of self-righteousness because there is no such thing. <clears throat> it's hard to describe the righteousness of God. When we look at the attributes of God, we can find them throughout Scripture but when we consider the actual righteousness and holiness of God, first of all, we have finite minds. And then, because the limitation, because of the sin of our flesh, 
we can't fully have the full comprehension of what God's righteousness is. And that's what Paul sought. He wanted to understand and know that righteousness that God alone attained, that had. He continues uh, his confession of this understanding of this righteousness that he received from God, not anything based on merit, but it was a gift from God. And it was based on God's grace acting through and bringing forth faith in all those that trust Christ for salvation. But this faith that was described uh, by one commentator, uh, MacArthur, John MacArthur, he said this, Faith, this saving faith, is the continuous confession of total dependence and trust in Jesus Christ. This is a necessary requirement to enter God's kingdom. It involves more than just a mere intellectual assent to the truth of the gospel. Saving faith includes trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, surrender to his lordship, is on the basis of faith alone, and that righteousness comes from God. The righteousness of God is seen in Jesus Christ. We see God's power in his creation. We see God's principles in the law. And we see God's personhood in Jesus Christ in his incarnation. It is infused with righteousness, end quote. So what he's saying there is that faith in our Lord Jesus Christ is based on who Christ is and knowing fully that he is God and knowing fully that we can place ourselves in his care and under his lordship and responding to do so. Jesus said in John 8:46, which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? In John 8:28, Jesus said, when you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am he. It's important to emphasize the righteousness of God. Uh, John Calvin, in his commentary on the the epistle to the Philippians said this. Again, I'm going to quote. This is a rather long quote, but bear with me because it's, it's enlightening. Philippians says, not having, and Paul says in Philippians, not having my own righteousness. Here, we have a remarkable passage. If anyone is desirous to have a particular description of righteousness of faith, and to understand its true nature, for Paul here, he makes a comparison between two kinds of righteousness. The one he speaks of as belonging to man, while he calls it, at the same time, the righteousness of the law. The other, he tells us, is from God. It's obtained through faith and rests upon faith in Christ. These he represents as so directly opposed to each other that they cannot stand together. 
Hence, there are two things that are to be observed in this text. First, the righteousness of the law must be given up and renounced that you may have the righteousness through faith. Second, that righteousness of faith comes forth from God and does not belong to the individual. End quote. Now, it's a rather wordy statement, but very comprehensive expression of what Paul is saying here. We can pursue, through the law, righteousness, but no man, by the, Paul says in Romans, which he wrote a year or two before Philippians, no man will be justified through the law. So there's the distinction the gift of God and experience in faith in Christ by his grace and then those that pursue the law or those who try to maintain their salvation, supposedly, by their own strength, their own effort. Either one of those cannot please God. So we have to understand from beginning to end, it's God's work. He's the one that draws us. He's the one that grants us faith to exercise that grace in salvation. And he's the one that will perfect us. Remember all the way back in chapter 1, where Paul says, He who began a good work in you will complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. It's Christ's work from beginning to end. Our salvation rests in him and he carries out the sanctification process in us. We're justified. That's the beginning of our walk in salvation. Then we are being sanctified. And that continues until God takes us home. And then, of course, we're glorified and we will be with him. So this sanctification process, which these believers were in, were all different stages. There were some young believers in Philippi. There was the more mature ones. And Paul was exhorting them all to deepen their relationship. And he himself was the example of that. He wanted that deeper relationship. <clears throat> no matter how high our standards might be, Compared to God's standards, they all fall short, fall short. Excuse me. Even if you're a moral person, a religious person, we'll still be condemned without Christ. So as Paul's thinking of all this, he's giving God the glory, thinking that all the things that he had tried, they're just a loss. And now... He wants to deepen that relationship. Let's look at verse 9. And we may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Now this is a righteousness in which there's some things going on. We have to look back. And there's a word called imputation. 
that word, it means it was put to account. And we'll look at the text in which Paul describes this. Excuse me. In Romans, but Paul, having pinned Romans a year or so before Philippians, had given the litany of man's condition, starting in Romans 1. Then he elaborated even more by the time we get to Romans 3, and we finally see in Romans 3 that no man is righteous, not one. All men are condemned. And then we find out that sin entered the world through Adam, the first man. And that was imputed to man. So we have the imputation of sin into the world in which all mankind was affected. So Paul here knew and understood that, as he wrote Romans, that man was righteous because of Christ's righteousness. That righteousness that is imputed or put to our account. God takes on himself the penalty of our sin. That's imputed to Christ. And then man who receives Christ and trusts in Christ, Christ's righteousness is imputed to them. So we are God's righteousness and it's Christ's righteousness in us, not us. There's nothing we do, nothing we can do to become any more righteous. And Jim elaborated that last week in Hebrews. We are as righteous as we'll ever be. Now, I can look around and say, well, <laughs> I know that you're all righteous in Christ, those that have trusted in Christ. But we are in this process of sanctification. God is working in us and transforming us into the image of his son. That work begins at salvation. And we're all in that process, all at different stages. Paul understood this, and he was trying to illuminate to these believers, this is where you are. And you want to pursue Christ and pursue his righteousness. Let me read Romans uh, Four, verses 21 through 24. Now this is in the King James Version. And being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was also able to form, and therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now it was written, not for just his sake alone, that it was imputed to him, but for us also, to whom it may be imputed, if we believe that Christ raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. So there Paul is giving the doctrine of imputation, the doctrine of God's righteousness given and put to man's account to those who have trusted Christ for salvation. <clears throat> that is, Christ, <clears throat> Christ in us, the righteousness, is found not in the commandments, nothing that we do, it's found in Christ alone. So what does that mean? As we are being set apart for God, we are pursuing that deeper knowledge of Christ. 
Paul clearly wanted that in himself. And yet, also, in Romans, he knew that he was not perfect. He was still a man. And then, in chapter 7, Paul clearly stated, as he cried out in verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of death? Apostle Paul reveals his deepest heart desire to grow in Christ's likeness. He wants to be found in him. Well, Paul was already in Christ. So what does he mean by this? Paul is now saying that he wants to have that deeper relationship, that deeper walk and the deeper understanding of the knowledge of his Lord. <clears throat> There's, as we considered those three imputations, that of sin being imputed to mankind, Christ taking upon himself the sin of all those who have trusted him for salvation, the imputation of man's sin and put to Christ's account, and then Christ's righteousness put to all those who trust Christ for salvation. Those are the three main imputations of scripture. And that's all that we can look at when we see the gospel. We know that we're sinners. If we don't understand that, then you can't be saved. If you think, well, I believe in God, I love God, I think he's done everything for me and I want to spend my life in heaven. We've heard all the uh, various testimonies of people who really don't understand salvation. They talk about God, they talk about loving God, they talk about serving God, and yet if they don't understand their need for salvation from their sin, they truly don't understand the gospel. So it is up to believers to help bring clarity to the gospel and to live out the gospel, and that's what Paul wanted to do. <clears throat> God's imputed his righteousness. <clears throat> Excuse me, my voice is a little bit off today. And he places his righteousness in all those who trust him. Paul wanted to be found in him. The phrase in him has the concept which is found 75 times in the New Testament in Paul's epistles. He's used that phrase 75 times. He wanted to be found in him, in Christ. Paul expressed the essence of the Christian life in Galatians 2.20. And I think this is probably the clearest depiction of what being in him means. Galatians 2.20 says this, I have been crucified in Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. He summarizes everything there. That's speaking of us in our relationship to Christ. Understanding the crucified life, and yet understanding Christ living through us. God alone is responsible for our salvation. 
Someone might ask, so how does that apply to me? God offers his righteousness to those who don't have righteousness. Um, the answer to these questions of God's righteousness and how do we attain that uh, may be found also in the book of Hebrews. <clears throat> in Hebrews 11, verse 6, and I'll read that to you, Paul says this, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. Now, it seems like a contradiction, almost uh, what theologian would call an antinomy. It sounds like, okay, we have in Romans 3, no man seeks God, not one. And here, in Hebrews chapter 11, the author of Hebrews said he's a rewarder of those who seek him. So how would one seek him if nobody seeks God? Because it's God's work. It's God drawing man to himself. And that is when man's eyes are opened and he is awakened to the understanding of the gospel by God's spirit quickening him. So it is the work of God in man to bring about that desire to seek him. Faith is uh, simply a belief in something that you uh, exercise daily. It's one of the most common, one theologian says, one of the most common realities in life is exercising faith. We exercise faith all the time. These things uh, are true of people. Faith is a reality for everyone's experience, believers, non-believers. In spite of this, there's many attempts to distort faith by turning it into something it really is not. There's many false teachers, not only today, but throughout church history. Uh, some of these teachers, the contemporary false teachers, say this. They teach that there's no sin, no evil, and no sickness, and that faith can overcome anything by denying the reality. Such faith is false. Those who follow this false teaching will be disappointed in this life and in eternity because they're not understanding the biblical exercise of true faith. One of the most common distortions of faith in our day is the attempt to make believing subjective. This is a faith, it's called existentialism. And it's the heart of a lot of religious feelings that are absent of objective scriptural truth. True faith is not based on empirical evidence. In other words, it's not experiential faith or something that we see that we place our faith in. True faith is based on objective truth. 
Scripture reveals the gospel. Without the revelation of the gospel, no man could be saved. So we exercise faith based upon scriptural truth and that we live out that faith in our lives as Christians. So we can't confuse that with trying to think of faith that is based on some experience. Some people say, well, I've experienced a miracle and God did this in me, yet they may not have a testimony of salvation. And yet they're attributing their faith on an experience. That's referred to as existential faith. Our faith is placed in Christ who is revealed through what? His word. So we base everything that has to do with biblical faith on biblical truth that has been given to us in scripture. <clears throat> Saving faith is based upon revealed absolutes from objective truth of the Bible, scriptures. In John, 1 John 1, the apostle explained that he was interested in experiential gospel. So what does he mean by this? Let's read 1 John with you. <clears throat> it's important to understand that the book of 1 John, the intent of that book is to really see the fruit of the true Christian. And this is what's John's intent. He says this, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life for into Christ. And the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So there we have an apostle who walked with Christ, witnessed all that Christ had done, witnessed the miracles, witnessed the crucifixion, the resurrection, and Christ's ascension. And that he was bringing forth to reveal to believers. That was his testimony. And then throughout the whole book of 1 John, of course, he's giving all the evidences of true Christianity. <clears throat> There's two parts to the transaction of salvation. On the one hand, we're sinners, and sin must be punished, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.10. God says that Christ died to bear that punishment. The second part is on the basis of Christ's death. <clears throat> he comes to us, and through salvation offers us his righteousness as an entire 
free gift. Before, we're clothed in sin. Before salvation, we could do nothing but sin. We could do nothing to please God. Absolutely nothing. Anything that we did prior to salvation manifested in some way in sin. People say, well, there's people that do good deeds. True. But those good deeds are also tainted by sin. They may do some things that are commendable from the world's view, but from God's view, it's tainted by sin. <clears throat> so we must believe, first of all, that we're sinners and accept his verdict, his judgment. What is his judgment to all sinners? To be cast out into eternal darkness, into hell for all eternity and suffer eternal punishment. That's God's judgment for all those who do not turn to him for salvation. People want to distort that and deny it. <clears throat> Abraham was used uh, as the father of our faith, always pointed to as the father of our faith. And back in Genesis, in chapter 22, God was testing Abraham. And he told him to take his son, Isaac, and his offspring, and to offer him up as a sacrifice. Now, Abraham was a man of faith. He believed God, and he yet was going to sacrifice his son. Now, this was the promised son, and through all the inheritance would be given. And through all the, uh, all of Israel would be born out of Isaac. So as we look back at that in chapter 11 of Hebrews once again, he's used an example there in verse 19 in chapter 11, he says this. <clears throat> Beginning with verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. <clears throat> and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. Now he did have another son by whom? Hagar. But that was not the promised son. The promised son came through Sarah, and that was Isaac. <clears throat> he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac's, your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise up people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding the things to come. So, though he didn't take Isaac's life, God did test him. He wasn't tempting him, but he was testing him to see the integrity of Abraham's faith. Of course, we know from the account in Genesis, God sent an angel to stop it before Abraham took his life, and he spared him then provided in the thicket a lamb for an offering. 
So we have that account, and Abraham is always pointed to in the New Testament as the father of our faith. So as we look at that, and we look at the New Testament understanding of salvation through faith, we understand here that Paul is now talking about this faith being lived out and carried out in his life and wanting a deeper relationship. As we look at the wording of knowing, um, it gets a little bit complicated. And I referred to a couple of Greek scholars, and this is the description of how Paul is describing this word knowing. Knowing in the Greek is not a verb, but a form of the noun gnosis. Gnosis in the Greek means knowledge. From the verb gnosko, which means to know experimentally and experientially by personal involvement, that's the word that Paul used here. He's wanting to know Christ in a deeper way that will affect his whole life. He's being transformed. And that knowledge, as it deepened in Paul, was affecting everything that Paul did. He could be incarcerated, didn't, I mean, he was suffering for Christ. And yet, even there, he was carrying out ministry. He had led the Praetorian guards the, uh, through, through Lydia, actually. But Paul came to Lydia first in the account in Acts. And throughout his whole process of being incarcerated, he was bringing forth the gospel and still ministering to the saints in Philippi. He still carried on ministry. He wanted to have this deeper knowledge that was imparted to him <clears throat> as he sought Christ in a deeper way. This surpassing knowledge of Christ that Paul describes is way more than just intellectual knowledge. It was impacting his life. As we read scripture, as we understand the gospel from cover to cover in scripture, as it's revealed gradually, that impacts our lives. It affects how we respond to daily situations. Paul was willing to suffer the loss of all things. He was willing to suffer in every way for Christ. Didn't matter to him, his condition. That was just... Uh, side issue. He was, was he suffering in Rome? We don't know. Scripture doesn't reveal in that particular time. But they were concerned about him enough to send somebody all the way from Philippi to Rome to see if Paul was all right. And yet Paul was seeking this deeper relationship with Christ. So as we consider that, I'll close with this. Paul gives us an illustration here. We'll complete it, uh, this text next time. But Paul here is not only exhorting these believers to follow Christ, but to deepen their relationship with him and to follow Paul's example. He lived his Christianity in such a way that he says, follow me as I follow Christ. Was it flawless? No. Did he fail? Yeah. Did he sin? Yes. 
but he was repentant and he continued to be a living example for all those who knew him and all those who were affected and impacted by his relationship because of his deepest relationship in the knowledge of Christ. Uh, this should be encouragement to all of us. It is a, a book, however, of encouragement. So we should look to this as an example and an exhortation, if you would, to us to deepen our time with the Lord, with our prayer and time in God's word. Allow him to work in us. It isn't a work that we do, but is to pursuing Christ with all our heart to allow him to transform us. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you've revealed to us your word, that you've given us the understanding of the gospel through scripture, and that you have brought us to Christ through the power of your Holy Spirit. And it's because of this work you've begun in us that we desire to know you in a deeper way. I pray that each of us, Lord, would be impacted by your word as it's preached, as it's taught, as we study, as we meditate on it, and as we live our daily lives. May you, by your Holy Spirit, work in us to will and to do of your good pleasure. We just pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.